You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 8th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, the UK's two major political parties leap out of the election campaign gate and fall over their own notably long red shoes. We'll reflect on the looming 30th anniversary of the first breach of the Berlin Wall. We'll find out why the British don't learn from the Finns and stop trying to say stuff when there isn't really anything to say. And from the just because we can doesn't mean we should file. The looming widespread reanimation of dead film stars. I'm Andrew Muller Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller, and we will start here in the UK, currently a day less than five weeks from a general election, and so where five weeks from now we should have some idea of when 2020's general election will be, for neither of the two major parties have things started swimmingly. Within the last 24 hours, a visibly refreshed Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has told a party of Northern Irish farmers of the marvels of the single market and free movement, both of which Johnson has pledged to end for the rest of the country, and the Labour Party operative responsible for resetting the hours without an anti-Semitic incident flip chart has realised how busy this campaign is going to be. Well, I'm joined, first of all, by Monocle's Tom Edwards. Um, Tom, week one, what, what have been your highlights so far? Well, Andrew, what's been really instructive to me was that you and I and others around uh, this table have talked about the possibility of this campaign being fought in the same fraught, toxic way as the general Brexit discourse has been prosecuted for the past three years or so. And we were thinking, very hoping, that it couldn't possibly. It's possibly been worse than we were anticipating well, in the first few days. This does prompt us to a, a bit of crystal ball gazing, which is, is it possible that this is one of those things that has, has started badly and will kind of find a rhythm and everybody will get their act together and it, you've already started laughing? Sorry. And five weeks from now, it might be resembling an actually normal election campaign run by semi-competent political parties. Or is this just going to get madder and madder the longer it goes on? I think it started badly and it's probably going to get worse. What's been really striking in the first couple of days is that the uh, two key parties, I suppose, Labour in opposition and the loosely governing Tory party, um, have been tripped up by problems of their own making, but also hold perhaps beneath the waterline by turncoats within their own ranks. Now, we have seen a lot of this on Brexit. We've seen people crossing the floor of the House of Commons and so on. I can recall no election campaign like this in my entire lifespan watching this, going right back to uh, some of these very toxic election campaigns of the of the 1980s, for example, where people have come out so starkly. We had two quite prominent Labour MPs this week saying, look, save the country, vote Tory, it's the only responsible <laughs> thing to do. It, it, it's almost inconceivable to think of any period in history, even when you had... Michael Foote's uh, Labour or Kinnock's Labour when you had Thatcher's Tories sort of doing their worst, to think of any equivalent in a general election. That has really, really surprised me. Well, one of the factors that I think might make the next few weeks even madder than the first week has been is that there have been a number of candidates from both parties, and I'm 
they're turning up at such a rate, I don't actually want to name the actual number we're at, uh, who have been uh, rendered redundant as candidates because some previous uh, outburst or infelicity uh, has come to light. That is, of course, going to mean that new candidates are going to have to be found and dropped in with probably not a great deal of scrutiny. Now, that that is a just that's just a recipe for further catastrophe. I mean, there's, if there's five weeks of this, Tom, one of us might be prime minister. Well, I, I don't want to make a clunky sporting analogy, but if you follow <laughs> football, earlier this week, Manchester City, free spending Manchester City, subbed off their main goalkeeper, put the sub in, he got a red card. By the end of the game, a fullback was in goal. He actually played all right. Essentially, we're going to have a lot of fullbacks in goal, Andrew, when it comes to uh, prospective MPs. That is one doomsday scenario that I actually kind of don't mind seeing because there's something rather wonderful about the emergency stand-in who's come in to cover some terrible, egregious mistake that someone else has made and it turns out they've done far worse. Um, But look, this is the problem. All of these parties are struggling to maintain a a grip on their own uh, MPs. They're struggling profoundly to get a hold of the narrative, something that's going to be compelling for the public. And one thing that is rather interesting is in this sort of campaign, which is fragmented and toxic and all rather tempestuous, it does make one wonder whether you come out the other side and actually the only thing that's the same is the political status quo. Could everyone be dragged in so many directions that actually we end up in broadly the same position, a hung parliament? And then there's even fewer options uh, available to those who are left standing. Can't wait. Tom Edwards, thank you for joining us. You're listening to Monocle's House View. You're listening to Monocle's House View on Monocle 24. Now, 30 years ago tomorrow, the East German border guards manning the checkpoints in the Berlin Wall stepped aside. The wall, which had isolated West Berlin in East Germany for 28 years, was not merely broached, but swiftly set about with hammers and chisels by delighted citizens. It wasn't the first tear in the Iron Curtain, which had descended across Europe after World War II, and it wasn't the end of Soviet communism, not quite, but it was recognised then and now as the moment the Cold War ended. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Monocle's affairs editor and former Berliner, uh, Chris Chermak. Uh, Chris, am I right in recalling that you were there at the time? So I was actually there two weeks after the wall came down. I was quite young, and I'm not going <laughs> to date myself exactly on this program, but I was. we visited You, you would parents. only be flattered in comparison with its presenter. Well, I appreciate that, but still, yes. I, we visited with my parents. My father's Austrian, uh, mother's American, and they just they recognized the significance of the moment. And so we actually went to Berlin. I think it was about two weeks after the wall fell, collected a bunch of bits of rock, as many people did, which we then handed out as gifts for many, many, <laughs> many years to come. I, I do myself have some hand-chiseled portions of Berlin Wall on a shelf at home, though I collected mine probably just about a year later, just after Germany was reunified. Okay, it's that a, works it, too. <laughs> it's a nice souvenir to have. Uh, but you, you, went, nice. you went back to live and work there. Was it your perception that Berlin and now the capital of a reunified Germany, had managed to retain any of the the very strange and distinct character it developed during those years of isolation. 
So yes, definitely, in some ways. I mean, I think what strikes you when you when you go to Berlin and when you live there, first of all, is the fact that you don't see much of the wall, right? So you go you go to all these neighborhoods and, and parts of the city um, where you can imagine the wall might have been, but there really isn't anything much left of it there except this small little memorial on the ground. It's sort of bricks that they have that run along the root of the wall. Um, but I do think Berliners keep the wall very much in their minds. And so what I loved about being in Berlin compared to other cities was this idea that history is very much alive. So you can speak to people who recall all of these things because when you think about it, it's still not that long ago. So many people who live in Berlin have memories, grew up there, grew up during the time of the wall or have experiences just after the wall. Um, so you can have all these conversations that very much, I feel, keep the, the wall in people's minds. Is, is it your sense that the meaning of each anniversary, well, that on each anniversary at least, the meaning of the, the opening of the wall changes a little bit? Because at the time it was perceived as the end of the Cold War, democracy wins, communism loses. Uh, in subsequent years, it's a celebration of that, plus things like the reunification of Germany and so on and so forth. And it just seemed always seemed to me at least least, that until quite recently, the voice of East Germans was rather occluded from the celebrations. No one was really stopping to ask, what's this been like for you? And it's just in the last few years, maybe that's become a bit more of a conversation. Yeah, I think you could be right about that. I mean, I think each time you're right, an anniversary comes along, the discussion that we have about it changes. And I think two things are part of the discussion this time that maybe aren't as much last time. One is the continuing divisions within Germany, as you say, and the role that the East Germans have and um, are sort of speaking up a bit more um, and also voting for, and this falls into the second one, voting for populist parties, right-wing parties like the Alternative for Germany, which is a bit of an expression of the the the, uh, the troubles that you still have, if you will, in East Germany right now. And so I think that is coming to the fore. And related to that, I think given uh, the rise of populism that we've had in the last five years since the 25th anniversary, where I was also in Berlin, um, walls are very much a topic right now, right? Well, Everywhere indeed, in the sorry. world. <laughs> and so I think the significance of Berlin, it's it's taken on a different significance now because of that feeling and concern that we maybe haven't learned the lessons of 30 years ago. How did they celebrate the 25th anniversary? What are your recollections of that? So for me, that was very emotional to be there, I have to say, um, because what they did uh, 25 years ago was they actually set up along the entire route of the wall through the city a set of balloons. So they had balloons on sort of pedestals, and the balloons were lit up, each, each one of them. And so it just created this... I don't want to say sense of division because you could walk through mm. each of these, right? So it wasn't it wasn't that it created this sense of division within the city, but especially for someone like me who had just arrived about six months before that in Berlin, it gave me this first impression of like what it could have been like then. Because as I said at the beginning of this, without that, there's no vi- there's no real visible representation except for a couple of areas of the city where the wall still exists. So this was an excellent way to just show where the wall was traveling, and you could cycle along the entire route or walk along the entire route, and they had exhibitions along different points of that. So it was just, it was very well done. Chris Charmack, thank you very much for joining us. And do tune in to the next edition of The Foreign Desk tomorrow at midday UK time. That'll be the first of a four-part look we're doing at the fall of the Berlin Wall and what it meant for Eastern Europe generally. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned.
You're listening to Monocle's House View. Finnish Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto has been visiting Kashmir this week. Havisto raised issues such as the imprisonment and house arrest of local politicians and called the volatile situation in the region unsustainable. The Finnish Foreign Minister was visiting as Finland holds the European presidency for the next few months. We have heard similar blandishments from Western politicians on the Kashmir situation in the past, but do foreign politicians meddling in the area really ever get results? Well, Earlier, Monocle's Marcus Hippie put exactly that question to the journalist Robin Lustig and the military scientist Aisha Sadika. I think what international politicians are trying to tell India is that the situation is untenable and the restrictions, the human rights atrocities, the clampdown on media, on internet, on people not being able to voice their concerns in Kashmir, that's not doable. I mean, that's not good for India's record. And in a very funny way, I mean... Who ever bothered around the world about Kashmir until Modi internationalized the issue? Um, it is, in a way, India's doing. And the world is now chatting back and talking back and telling them, no, this is not how you do it. Um, now, I I don't think that India is about to change its policy on Kashmir, but they have to appreciate that this is untenable. I mean, they have to be more careful in how they treat Kashmiris and then Muslims around India. I mean, there's a lot of stories coming out on how minorities get treated in in, in India these days. Now, Robin, how much does it matter if the Finnish foreign minister calls this situation in Kashmir unsustainable? What could foreign politicians realistically do to improve the situation there? I think it's important that uh, both India and Pakistan are reminded at every opportunity that other countries are interested in and aware of what is happening in Kashmir. Uh, There are too many conflicts around the world where the international community does turn a blind eye and where authoritarian governments do get away with things which they ought not to be allowed to get away with. On the other hand, both India and Pakistan know that if anybody is ever going to sort out Kashmir once and for all, it will be them. It won't be anybody else. And there have been countless examples in the past of uh, foreign politicians thinking they know better than the local actors and getting their fingers burnt. So to answer your question, no, I don't think it makes a huge amount of difference what the Finnish foreign minister says, even if Finland does, as you say, hold the rotating presidency of the EU. On the other hand, I think it's important that he said it. Aisha, you said earlier that you don't think India will change anything, but at the same time, considering this kind of pressure, do you think that has... Does it change anything in New Delhi? Do they, do the politicians there feel the pressure? I think they do. And given the kind of government it is, what it is trying to do these days is put it on their foreign minister, put it on their uh, foreign ministry and its bureaucracy, while the problem is much more internal. I mean, this is a very right-wing government in India which is not thinking through its policies. And it's going to disrupt, in in the long term, disrupt its relations between its different communities. So we are looking, actually, uh, the problem in Kashmir is symptomatic of a larger and a longer problem. Excuse me. Um, So I think, but the pressure that needs to be put on India is that it needs to think through its policies. And the other thing is that it's very difficult for it to chew on the solution it says it's brought to to Kashmir. 
Uh, they introduce, uh, the rev- they revoke the different articles and the basis they're going to bring development. But if you look at the development record of different states, Kashmir does much better than many of the other states in India. Uh, so what is the logic? Um, I think it's important for the present Indian government to think carefully how it makes its policies and it can't be all ideological Hindu right wing. Robin, you said earlier that it's down to India and Pakistan to to solve this issue. But if we if we look at these things more widely, can you think of any success stories when foreign politicians' involvement actually has helped solve crisis and has made a difference? Yes, uh, there have been some examples, not very many. Um, two that I can think of: Northern Ireland, uh, the long-running uh, violent campaign by the IRA. <laughs> against British rule in Northern Ireland was finally halted with some help from the United States, from US politicians. Uh, At one stage, uh, Bill Clinton as president became involved. The other example I can think of, it was only short-lived, unfortunately, was the Oslo peace accords in the Middle East between Israelis and Palestinians, which were negotiated, as the title Oslo would suggest, with a lot of help from Norway. What was crucial about both those episodes, though, was that a lot of the work was done quietly, behind the scenes, below the radar, in the early stages, in both cases, by non-politicians, by intermediaries, mm. by people operating as um, as go-betweens between the, uh, the, the fighters. And it can work. I mean, the Oslo Accords didn't last very long, but it, it did op- offer a, a moment of, of hope to the, the people in the region. So it can be done, but I, I don't think a foreign minister turning up and saying, oh, this isn't a very good situation on its own anyway is, is enough. Exactly. You need you need a group of those intermediaries in the background. Yeah, absolutely. You need what, what are often called sort of second channel or, or below the radar channels of, of talks, exp- exploratory talks, negotiations. It's very slow, it's very uncertain and it has to be done quietly. Robin Lustig and Aisha Sadiqa there speaking to Marcus Hippie on the briefing on Monocle 24. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. Now, according to doubtless meticulous research by an attention-seeking corporate entity, the average resident of the United Kingdom spends an accumulated week every year making small talk. 28% of Britons surveyed claimed reasonably to dislike indulging in inane blather about minutiae with people they'd heartily rather dropped dead, which suggests astonishingly that 72% of the massive weirdos who live here either don't don't mind small talk or actively enjoy it. If any one nationality is likeliest to be mystified by this, it is the famously taciturn people of Finland, who rarely speak at all, unless startled by a moose. Well, I'm joined to discuss this further, or perhaps for six minutes of stolid, sullen silence, by Monocle's resident Finn, uh, Marcus Hippie. Um, Marcus, is it your experience that the UK is especially weird on the, on the small talk thing? I think there are some countries where you need some 
some small talk skills, but I think what's special about the UK is that it gets really weird if you don't do small talk. I feel like in the US, for example, people are so talkative anyway that they don't get so bothered if I don't say much. But for, in the UK, I actually have to put in an effort. Otherwise, it's followed by an awkward silence. I mean, you're right about Americans. You don't really have to say anything because they'll do all the talking for you. They make you. it very easy. And, and, and Americans, of course, often go straight from small talk to telling you things that normal people wouldn't tell their best friends. But the, the, the British don't do that. Have you found an adjustment? How, how have you learned to do small it's, talk? It's, it's a, I have had a long learning curve. I remember when I moved to the north of England back in the day and I spent the first weeks wondering why my course mates, for example, were so incredibly intrigued by how well I was doing. I was faced this question by your eyes about seven times now. Every single time I'd be like, I'm fine. Why are you asking? It took me a long time to realise that actually it doesn't matter anything. I think, I think from the Finnish point of view, it's really, really hard for us to learn these skills because it's not natural at all. It's not instinctive at all. In Finland, there's a saying that being silent is worth of gold and talking is worth of silver. And communication in Finland is very much about efficiency. And another thing I'm, I'm still struggling with nowadays in the UK, in London, for example, is that if I've got something urgent work-related, it is somehow expected that you soften your important work question by asking something else beforehand. So as an example, you know, Andrew, you are doing your, your program writing your scripts, getting ready for that. And I have to tell you that we've got a different guest now. But I can't just come to you and be like, Andrew, different guest. I can't do that because that seemed to be too abrupt. Instead, I have to come and stand next to you and ask if you are doing all right. No, Marcus, you're misunderstanding. I'm Australian. You can come up to me and say, Andrew, you can come up to me and say, Andrew, one of the guests has changed and I'm not going to take it personally. As a matter of fact, this is going to make our cooperation way easier in the future. (laughs) So thank you very much for that, Andrew. I think it's quite sweet that in, in Finland... People are really, really conscious about this issue now that they're not great in small talk. And there are some individuals who every now and then come out in the media trying to give some advice. And I tried at some point, but it gets a bit tenuous. So sometimes, even nowadays, I try. If I'm if I'm faced with someone I don't know and I have to come up with something to say, one basic rule Finns are taught that it's always good to compliment something the other person is wearing, for example. That always works well. So in this situation, I would point out that, Andrew, you recently had a haircut. It's really nice. Thank you. Marcus, yes, I, I have, and I, I, I am myself quietly pleased with it. Um, I'm, I'd be kind of sad, though, if we if we steer this conversation towards Finland and away from the United Kingdom. I would be kind of sad if the Finns suddenly decided they needed to become a chattier people. I really like that about Finland. Because, I, think, I, think and I, I like it as a journalist because often when people are talking to you, you can't quite understand what they're telling you is important and what they're telling you isn't important. Finns make it easier because you can kind of think, well, if it wasn't important, they wouldn't say anything. Mm, I think that's really important when you, to realise. When you go to Finland, when people say something to you, they actually mean it. So if, if they suggest that you should go for a dinner or lunch, they actually mean it. And, <laughs> and the other way around, it's always, every now and then I come across these sad stories when I meet fellow Finns who've come to, say, London, and they are going on back in Finland how they have made new best friends and they're going to go for dinners and drinks very soon. And I'm like, that's unlikely to happen. I'm sorry to break the news. I think I think Finland should try to maybe turn this into some kind of a, a soft power tool. I've been thinking recently because so often I come across this situation that I meet British people mostly who have met Finnish people, and they always say that these Finns were super super weird and strange, and the Brits never quite knew what to do with them because they were so silent and so awkward. And I think it would make things so much easier if you knew beforehand that this Finn you were going to meet is not going to say much unless you make the effort. 
By the way, I have to say that I've changed as well. After eight years in, in London, I realized that nowadays when I go back to Finland, I'm talking so much nonsense because my <laughs> Finnish friends are typical Finns. So they may say something, then they look elsewhere and they're quiet for 45 seconds. I always feel like feeling these gaps. I can't help myself. So, you know, I'm sorry, my friends, but, you know, I didn't necessarily mean it when I said that I love your bag. Well, thank you, Marcus, for that uncharacteristically garrulous intervention on that subject. You are listening to Monocle's House View on Monocle You're listening to Monocle's House View on Monocle 24. James Dean famously did not get to enjoy the long and stellar film career that he might have. He died in a car accident in 1955, aged just 24, but having already starred in Giant, East of Eden and Rebel Without a Cause. He is to star, however, in the upcoming Finding Jack, an adaptation of Gareth Crocker's Vietnam War novel of the same name. This is to be made possible with a combination of cunningly spliced old footage of Dean and CGI images projected onto human stand-ins. Dean's family have given the idea their blessing, so is this really as ghastly as it sounds? The short answer, obviously, is yes, but here with the longer one is Monocle 24's resident cineast, Ben Ryland. Um, Ben, as, to the extent that you can bear to contemplate this, how is this actually going to work? Oh, I thought you'd already decided, uh, Andrew. Am I am I required? Shall I just shall I just leave? <laughs> I apologize for leading the witness, but seriously, this is, this is horrible, isn't it? It's a terrible idea. Yeah, I, this has never really gone well before. Uh, not to say that this particular kind of idea has ever happened before. This is quite an extreme version of what we've sort of seen creeping into popular culture. Uh, viewers in the UK and perhaps other countries as well might be familiar with a certain television commercial that's been doing the rounds for a couple of years that stars uh, Audrey Hepburn promoting a chocolate bar whilst sitting on a bus. Uh, I this is the, 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 find the, that a bit weird. The Roman holiday pastiche, isn't it? I think so, yes. I find that a little bit weird, uh, but then again, it's only 30-45 seconds of uh, of television. This is going to be a feature film, and also, it's going to be a feature film that sounds like it might actually be reasonably serious. I can't imagine how James Dean being part of the cast is not going to be awfully distracting. I mean, there's a, a similar phenomenon already underway in music when people are sending holograms of dead artists on tour and weirdly selling large numbers of tickets. We've seen it done for Roy Orbison, Whitney Houston, Maria Callas. Uh, Rumoured upcoming ones include Amy Whitehouse, Amy Winehouse rather, and Patsy Cline, among many others. If you look at YouTube footage of the Roy Orbison one, it is credit where it's due actually quite eerie there is a live band and the hologram of Roy Orbison appears in front of it there's an obviously gimmicky part of that which people are I think enjoying going to see but is that going to work in as a film uh, rather than as a live event just the, even the, the gimmicky circusy part of it well I think in those examples that you mentioned Andrew there is a key difference I think in that they are these holograms are performing music that the musician did actually record And True. my a, understanding is yeah. that the holograms are built from actual footage. So the holograms aren't manipulating the person into doing something they never did. Uh, this 
This is a bit different because James Dean is going to be starring in a role that he never played. It's going to be a voice that does not belong to him. It's going to be a CGI recreation of his face stitched onto the person, another person, another actual person. That's really weird. There's something Frankensteinian about that. Uh, something sort of reanimator that that just, I mean, if you if you were to put that into literal sense, take the CGI out of it and imagine doing that in real life, I mean, that would be an actual horror movie, wouldn't it? <laughs> and for some reason, because it's the wonder of technology, we're all like, oh, gee whiz, I'm I'm not sold. Uh, yeah, and, and not only all of that, but starring in a film in a war that began 10 years after he died. Well, again, I mean, there's no end to how weird this this really is. We have seen it, I suppose, on television in, in other ways. Uh, there was the famous episode of The Sopranos in which uh, the the act the actress who played uh, one of the the key roles, uh, the mother, I believe, of the lead character, uh, she passed away quite suddenly, and so they had to work out how to exit her character from the story rather than have her just vanish all of a sudden. They had another actress stand in and then CGI'd her face over the top of that. It didn't get a very good reception at all. It allowed the storyline to finish quite elegantly, but it really, it felt, it, it made people feel really off and, and unnerved about the whole thing. And I think it is because, you know, the tone of The Sopranos is quite serious. And to do something like this, there's no way around it. It's utterly ridiculous. But the thing is, there isn't going to be an end to this. The technology will get better and better. It will doubtless be possible to make completely seamless transfers of dead actors into modern films. You will be able to cast the entire movie in which you can play whoever you like opposite whoever you like from whichever era you like. We're going to get Vivian Lee playing opposite, I mean, I don't know, who who, who would be a ridiculous dead person to play opposite Vivian Lee? A ridiculous dead person yeah. to play opposite Vivian Lee. Oh. I was grasping for superlatives there, and I, I, I couldn't think of one. Uh, but but you see where this is going. I see where it's going, and my big question is why? Why do we need to do any of this? I mean, have we got to the point now where there are no people left that are eligible to be film stars, so we need to recycle the actual actors of dead, old as well? Dead ones will be cheaper. Dead, I, I'm not sure about that either. I mean, <laughs> I'm really not sure whether they're going to be saving any money by doing all of this effort to stitch this random stand-in person's face in to make them look like, like James Dean. Surely it would be simpler and cheaper just to get an actual actor and just just, just move on. I mean, I, I, I can't understand why this is happening. It's obviously a gimmick. Obviously, they're hoping it's going to help sell tickets. My suspicion is that it's going to be a massive distraction, that the film is not going to be famous for anything to do with the actual craft of, of making the film, for it being a reasonable piece of entertainment. It's only going to be known for this particular thing. I wouldn't be surprised if it actually never happens at all, actually. Ben Ryland, thank you for joining us. That is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Menu with the unusually talkative for Finland, Marcus Hippie. Monocle's House View returns at the same time on Monday, 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Listener.